Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. And I am one of your co-hosts, Mike. We got Tim here. Hey. What's up? <laughs> How you doing? Doing pretty well, man. I just, uh, we just saw that we just closed a, uh, a pretty large client by, uh, you know, coming in towards the end of the year. That's always nice. So I'm pretty excited, you know, working from home, you feel disconnected from your team, no matter mm -hmm. how much you're producing, you still feel, I don't know, maybe not you, the proverbial you, but I do. Mm -hmm. So seeing wins really, you know, oh, yeah. helps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, that, that's something to get behind, but uh, if you're out there listening to this, it is now 2021. Oh, but yeah, we're recording this in 2020. We're recording so. this in 2020. So we're, you're, you're time traveling basically to, to listen to us talking before the new year. Nobody is, wants to go back to 2020. Though. Is 2021 better than 2020 yet? Let's hope. Oh, I mean, low bar. Yeah, it's not going to take low much. Low bar, but you know, we'll see what happens. Um, got any new year's resolutions? Yeah, that's such, uh, I'll keep it short. No, but this year was so difficult mentally and physically. And I feel like I fixed a lot of things, but I had to give up some stuff. And mm -hmm. so this year, I know it sounds, everybody does like I'm going to the gym or whatever, but like focusing on my health, cause I had to get my life in order outside. Like I was spending too much time in the gym, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So this year I let my physical health dwindle a little bit to get the mental and everything else in order. Now that I'm getting that more under control, I'm going to make physical a priority again. Right. Because the ability to, you know, be tired when you go to bed in this, you know, working out and all that stuff. It, it, I was getting so much done that I was not spending time at the gym and now spending an hour or two at the gym, mm -hmm. you know, it releases that makes you feel so much like so much better. And then right. you're able to sleep better at night. I was working so much that it was hard for me to, to mm -hmm. separate. So I guess, yes, that would be, you know, focus back on that while maintaining the other things, hopefully not letting one go in exchange for the other. Makes what sense. about you? Uh, I'm not a big New Year's resolution guy. Mm -mm. I mean, personally, right. Hey, if it was important, I probably would have been doing it before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before the new year. Um, but I do think that there's like, there's like one thing that I want to do, which is, you know, read a book a month Okay. in 2021. I think, I mean, I like reading, but sometimes I read too much for just my personal enjoyment and not enough to like improve myself. So I uh, do want to dial that in a little bit and we're doing a book club at work. So I think that's going to help stick to it, but nice. you know, new year's resolutions are kind of there. It's just like one of those things where why did you have to wait to the new year to start doing yeah, that? Yeah, mine's definitely <laughs> not a new year. It was like a COVID situation. Right. All the gyms closed. And now one of my best friends I have uh, is opening a, a, a new gym. And so I've set that start date as whenever he opens, then the switch turns on, you mm -hmm. know, rather than like new year's or whatever. But um, just making things priority, yeah. you know, have I think you it's thought? a good time to assess and see uh, if you can honestly assess and look at, you know, what am I lacking in life? That's the thing with the new year. But you got to treat it as like a, not a new year's resolution because that'll die. And just something that like you have to force it right. and, and then really want that or else in theory, that sounds great, mm -hmm. but how you spend your time really dictates what you really want. So that's a good, a lesson, I guess. To well, the other advice I would have for anybody out there who is trying to make a change in the new year is the mistake people make with new year's resolutions is they go from zero mm -hmm. to 100. Too big. Right. Like I, I haven't been working out at all. I'm going to work out five days a week. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, that's just, Hey man, you're, you're trying to do Setting too much. yourself up for failure. Yeah. Right. Not saying that you, some, there aren't, some, there are some people out there who have the strength of will that they could do that, mm -hmm. but build a gradual increase. Hey, I'm going to work out three days a week. Then I'm going to do five. Then I'm going to do six. Or right? just get and there like, once. Right. <laughs> yeah. Hey, like start, Hey, I'm going to work out once a week this first week. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to do it two times next week and just slowly build yourself up to that. Or take it in smaller chunks, like yeah. treat it as a, a week re resolution. This week right. I'm going to the gym and then you, you've accomplished. Next week I'm going to go to the gym. Yeah. You know, Break it up. Don't yeah. try and eat the elephant all at once. Break it up. Incremental increases, tiny improvements. Yep, 
Exactly. 1% better every day. That's Kaizen. There you go. Heck yeah. We just fixed everything. So you enjoy your year. Well, yeah. <laughs> and oh, I guess we should tell you guys about who we're going to be talking to today. So yep. uh, the guest on the show today is Andy Hayes. He's the president and co-founder at Copper Run and had a lot of fun talking to Andy, man. He does a lot of interesting things. So he works in mergers and acquisitions and he does both buy and sell side. Um, so what that means is he helps people buy or sell businesses and he's got a lot of great insights. He's, he's done, I mean, he worked at, um, Cantor Fitzgerald doing, uh, you know, a whole bunch of different stuff in the oil and a couple other industries, but had a really unique experience with that working there after nine 11 and helping rebuild that. Yeah, That was a company. crazy story. He also brought us a bottle of whiskey. He's a big whiskey fan. Yeah. And I realized by the end of the interview that I never said it, but uh, he, his name sounds like as if it was whiskey, a whiskey company, not right. a capital firm or a mergers firm. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He had some good stories. He had some, uh, an interesting path that got him to where he is. Yeah. And I uh, learned a lot. I did too. And, uh, hopefully you will as well. So, uh, on that note, I hope you guys enjoy this episode and we'll be right back. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that, a little uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella idea of agape capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believe in our people. Pelotonia CEO, Doug Oldman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And that goal stays the same 24 Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I, as usual, am Mike and uh, we've got everybody in the studio today. I've already got them shaking their heads. So here's uh, Tim and Josh. How we doing, man? Hello, hello. Good, good. And special guest Winnie back there in the corner. But uh, you guys won't hear from Winnie, but she's a uh, small, what's the, what's the golden doodle? I mini, believe. mini doodle, mini, I believe, is the technical doodle. term. She Sorry. would appreciate if you could understand who she is <laughs> and respect her, please. Well, but other than Winnie, of course, we've got our uh, our real guest today, and his name is Andy Hayes. He's the co-founder and president of Copper Run, and uh, Copper Run is an investment banking firm focused on helping their clients manage acquisitions, company sales, and uh, you know taking some chips off the table, so to speak. But uh, prior to co-founding Copper Run, Andy worked for and helped found. Cantor Fitzgerald's investment banking group on Wall Street after 9-11. And uh, their banking group focused on capital market activities in the REIT and oil and gas sectors, as well as administering up to $150 million of proprietary investments. Uh, he also happens to be a founding member and president of the Association for Corporate Growth, the Columbus chapter, as well as a board member of the Entrepreneurship Institute and a member of the Aileron Center for Entrepreneurship. And he's really passionate about helping entrepreneurs grow their businesses. We're excited to be talking with Andy today, learn more about Copper Run and what he sees in the Columbus market. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Andy. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate you having me today. Yeah, it's really exciting to have you here. And, and you know, typically one of the first places we like to start is just get a little more information on your background yourself. Uh, you know, have you always lived in Columbus? 
I have not. Um, you know, I grew up in, was born and raised in Canton, Ohio. So just Northeast of here, the Hall of Fame city, mm-hmm. uh, went to high school there. And, uh, you know, pretty kind of standard childhood, I'd guess, uh, you know, middle class, blue collar, um, you know, I was played sports, worked a lot. I was an Eagle Scout. I, uh, one thing I always did do though was work. You know, I started caddying, uh, when I was in seventh grade, which I have a seventh and an eighth grader now, and I can't even imagine them as caddies, but, uh, it was a, it was a great experience. I did that for six years actually. And that really opened my eyes to kind of a whole new world of business owners and lawyers and, you know, successful folks out there. So that was kind of a, that was a transformational moment probably for me or a time of my life. And then, uh, then I went to Ohio state after that, um, you know, didn't really look around at a lot of colleges. Ohio State was the only one I ever visited. A buddy and I uh, drove down and uh, toured the campus, and we had a very pretty tour guide, and we said, let's go to Ohio State. And so that was that. And uh, we enjoyed my time at Ohio State. It was, you know, I think you guys probably went to Ohio State too, didn't you? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, great place. You know, it's it's really improved over the years. I graduated, you know, over 20 years ago now. But it's, you know, the quality education, opportunities it provided really, you know, first rate. So it was a it was a great time. Great time in my life too. So you look back on the, did your, did your parents, were they entrepreneurial or were they focused on business? They were not. So um, they were not business folks at all. My dad was actually a pilot in the army and then the National Guard for about 40 years. And my mom was a preschool teacher. So, you know, did not have that business background at all. But, you know, I was always kind of a little entrepreneur, I'd say, when I was a kid. At one point, I made some fishing lures and tried to sell them very unsuccessfully. Um, you know, I always had little side businesses and mow lawns and things like that. So it was always kind of in my blood to be an entrepreneur, I think. And I knew probably long term that's I wanted to own my own business one day. And so that was that was always in the back of my mind. Were there any bodies of water by where you grew up? Uh, small ponds. Yeah, so okay. not really. That's the trick to the fishing lures. Is where you that's get. right. Yeah, my location was terrible. I was trying to sell them out of my front yard. Not a lot well, of traffic. That's so. why I didn't. Well, that's why it didn't take off. The only reason it didn't take off is you just didn't have the right location and that's the right absolutely. market. Absolutely. Yeah. He, you know? he was flooding Solid other people's yards. Yeah. Solid idea. Wrong location. Wrong market. But that's we what can it's make all it work. about. So at, at Ohio State, you studied finance. I'm assuming. I studied accounting. So um, when I went to Ohio State, I. I, my original idea was to study history. I loved history, still do love history. You know, study history and maybe go to law school, be a lawyer. Uh, but I got in in there and, um, you know, got introduced to the business school, the Fisher College of Business. Uh, ended up getting into the honors accounting program, which is a kind of a really nationally known program. And uh, that was, had some great professors, um, you know, learned a lot. Really, a lot of my classmates were really tremendous people. Still talk with some of them today. They're all over the country at this point. But uh, it was a, yeah, it was pretty interesting time and uh, enabled me to, I got a job at Ernst & Young out of college. Um, kind of a funny story. I met my wife on a job interview in Houston, Texas at Enron. Believe it nice. or not, if you're familiar with Enron, oh, yeah. probably the largest yeah. corporate uh, fraud in American history. And uh, we both interviewed for the same job and that's where I actually met my wife. So both of us got offered the job, didn't take it, but uh, kind of a probably good, probably good, good choice. Move. I think good that was a good around, move, right? Like, I mean, a lot of those people are probably in prison now. That's that, uh, uh, yeah. If yeah. that, what if that had been like, I mean, that talk about a turning point in life. 
Got the job at Enron, but didn't want it. <laughs> so I met somebody, I won't, I won't say any names, I met somebody the other day whose dad had started the company that eventually merged into what was Enron okay. and then exited before that happened. But he was here in Columbus and I was like, that is pretty remarkable. Yeah, mm-hmm. flirt, flirting with a lot of disaster there. Yeah. Most people don't know, actually, Enron's, their kind of whole Midwest headquarters was here in Dublin. They had probably at one point over a thousand people here. So it was, it was, there was a lot of Enron employees here at one point that have kind of dispersed to a lot of different, you know, firms all over the place. But uh, yeah, that was a interesting time, but uh, worked out for me and me and my wife. I I collect uh, vintage, this is completely random, but I collect vintage shirts, like one of my favorite things Sure. and finding you buy them. That's like cool. But if you actually find it at a thrift store, uh, that's like a grail is what they call it. Whatever. I found a dead stock, which means it never been worn or washed Enron shirt at a thrift store probably like three or four years ago. And it's like one of my favorite shirts in the oh, collection with that logo that kind of looks like the, the Nintendo 64. Yeah. yeah. It's one of my favorite pieces I've ever found. I've actually got, we have some like Enron highlighters. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. <laughs> at home. And, probably uh, worth some money if you yeah, want to yeah, yeah, dump those. Pretty interesting though. Yeah. <laughs> worth more than the company for sure. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're a little sidetracked here. So <laughs> bringing us back. So you studied accounting, right? Studied and accounting. Then, and then yep. what did you, so what do you get into after college? So I worked worked at Ernst & Young uh, in Cleveland. I uh, took the CPA exam, passed mm-hmm. it, and did that for about three and a half years. Uh, you know, I knew I didn't want to do that long term. Just not my personality. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's a great training background for anybody that wants to go to any in anything finance or investment banking, private equity related. Uh, but after that, I actually went back to Ohio State and got an MBA. Mm-hmm. At that point, the Fisher School had been completed, the new one, which is you know still there today, beautiful place, and uh, was there for a year and then got an internship. So this was, you know, fall of 2001 uh, when I went into school. 9/11 happened. You know, little did I know I was going to go work for a firm that basically had been decimated. You know, on 9/11. Uh, you know, eight months later, did an internship. Uh, through a, kind of a guy I'd met at Ohio State that worked at a hedge fund in New York. He got me an opportunity at Canner, uh, Canner Fitzgerald, and uh, started working there with two guys that had started an investment banking group there. And um, did an internship and you know things were really taking off. They said, hey, why don't you not go back to school and just stay here and keep working? And I had just gotten married literally a few months before. Um, my wife was in Columbus. I'm like, this, <laughs> I can't do it. Uh, I'd love to, but you know, can you give me six months to try and figure things out? And that's what that's what I did. So uh, Ohio State worked with me, which I'm uh, you know, very grateful to them. Still graduated, got an MBA uh, eventually, and then, uh, you know, worked, worked at Canner for a few years. So were you in New York City in 9-11? I was not. So uh, I was actually at Ohio State. That was my first day of MBA school was 9-11. Uh, and then joined them in, I guess it was June of 2002. So, you know, nine months later after 9-11 happened. But it was a, you know, pretty interesting place to be. Um, obviously, this horrible, you know, tragedy had happened. You know, six, seven hundred people had died at that firm alone out of a thousand people. You know, probably total employees on 9/11. And uh, so they were. That was always kind of the elephant in the room, and it was always kind of hanging over your head a little bit. Um, but it, at the same time, they had to build a business back, and I was part of that, part of a group, investment banker group, which was new at the time. They were primarily a fixed income trading firm. And um, yeah, did that and great experience for a few years. And then um, decided, you know, I wanted to own my own business and move back to Ohio. So I did that. So before we jump into the business too much, I think just finance and investment banking in particular is probably kind of a a dark third world to most people, maybe some of our listeners. Can you talk a little bit about what, what is investment banking? 
Sure. So, um, you know, investment banks do a number of things. So like the most famous ones or well-known ones would be like a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley. Uh, you know, they help companies raise money. Uh, they help sell companies. They help companies buy other businesses. Really anything that involves a finance transaction related to a company, uh, they're probably involved with. So, you know, commercial banks like a Huntington Bank down the road here, they would lend money for the most part to businesses. Investment banks are doing tr the transactions around you know, any kind of deal. How involved will you guys get with the actual marketing of, of the sale of the business? Will you guys help with that and positioning the we're, business? Yeah, we lead that. So that's really what we do on a daily basis. If we're selling a business, we're putting together the marketing materials, finding the potential buyers, negotiating terms, you know, that type of thing. I find that super interesting. That's a process I've been involved in a few times and I still feel completely oblivious to. I think that's really interesting. Like, is there, is, do people come to you? How do you establish that relationship of finding a, a buyer? Because in my pro, in my process of exiting or selling companies, I've learned all the mistakes I've made, but I never really learned the the right, you know, the, I guess the right way to do it. Does that make sense? Sure. I kind of accidentally came into something and then found out I built it incorrectly to set, to try to sell. <laughs> um, so do you guys, do you have like a criteria you look for? Do people always just kind of come to you and try? Is there like a limit that you're like, oh, we won't, you know, unless you have this much revenue, we won't even look at it. You know, sure. how does that vetting process work? Yeah. So most of our, we're, we serve what we call the middle market. Mm -hmm. And um, that's generally companies between 10 and 250 million in revenue. Mm -hmm. So most of the companies we sell are probably, you call it 10 to hundred million in size. Uh, but we also do a lot of buy side work. And that's really what we're known for probably nationally. Uh, is helping buyers. A lot of them are private equity firms, which I can explain what those are too, but um, helping them find acquisitions. And so we have a number of folks, you know, all over the country that have hired us to go find them acquisitions, uh, collect financial information, put together, put, put together deals, basically. Is there a similar market for even smaller businesses? There are. It's, I mean, quite frankly, it's a tougher market to get deals done in. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, information's not as good. There's not as much capital readily available for the really small deals, but yeah. absolutely, you know, deals get do get done there. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So when you're looking at just, you know, your portfolio, are you guys known for particular industries or particular like markets? Like if you segment that down even further, right? Like you talk about the revenue range, but are there any particular areas where you guys really like, hey, this type of business or this type of industry that we get involved in? Sure. So uh, going back to when we started Copper Run, uh, oil and gas. So I had, I had had a background in oil and gas and we did a lot of that. And that was really when kind of the shale Mm -hmm. Marcellus Shale and Utica yeah, Shale say. boom was taking off. This is 12, 13 years ago. Over time, today it's less than 5% of our business. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 10 years ago, it was 60% of our business. That's just a couple of things. Natural, you know, evolution of the market. That market has changed fundamentally. It's pretty much just large players doing all the activity in that business. Now, there used to be a lot of independents. That independents are basically gone. Um, and also our, you know, we just evolved into, so the thing we're, like I mentioned, we're known for is really buy side services. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, we just closed a deal with, um, you know, Dan Gilbert, the guy that owns the Cavs. He yeah. has a family office in Detroit. They're a client of ours. We helped them find a business in Idaho 
uh, and close on that just a couple of weeks ago. So we'll work with groups that have capital and search all over the country for specific industries or you know niches and, and help them close deals. So I could come and say, hey, look, I'm looking for a software company that does XYZ, right? And we're looking to get into it, but then we want them in a revenue of this range and, and you guys go do the research and find exactly. the options. Yep, you got it. Do you have an industry that, you t- that tends to be prominent or? Sure. So we've done a lot and kind of, I'd call them building services. Mm-hmm. So that's roofing, you know, fire inspection, HVAC. Uh, we've also done a fair amount of software. Uh, mm-hmm. We're really uh, involved in software right now. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, a lot of companies want to be software companies these absolutely. days. So they want to have that arm at least. And it's a scalable business. So right. it makes sense. And we've also done a lot of metal benders over the years. Mm. Um, probably less of that today. What about we welding? Past. Uh, no, I don't know if you're Josh and I work for a, ro- <laughs> right. a robotic, oh, robotic oh, yeah. welding company. <laughs> We've um, sold a couple of robotic businesses that serve the automotive industry, so you guys would probably be familiar with them. But I'd say that, you know, building services, software, those are probably two areas I'm seeing a lot right now. But but it's changes, the mix changes over time. And it makes sense, right? Because when you look at like, so like when you look at private equity strategy, right? Like typically, right, they want to build a company that that is the, what's the word? There's a phrase I'm looking for. The whole product is worth more than the sum of the parts, if that makes sense. Synergies. Synergies, right? Yeah. They're looking for synergies. They're looking for adjacencies to their market that they can put these all these businesses together and say, hey, we took all these businesses, bought them, but when we put them together, they all have synergies, so they're worth more now, right? And so you work with a lot of private equity firms, so it makes sense. Like those industries that you mentioned seemed like ones where you could apply those synergies well. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And and we we do what we call the roll-up strategies a lot of times mm-hmm. for private equity firms where they're going to buy 10 businesses in one industry, roll them all together, and then sell it for hopefully a higher price than they paid uh, right. when, they, when they bought them because initially. Because they did the work of rolling them all together. Yep, <laughs> yep, absolutely. So go back to those beginning days, and, and if you can, in as granular details, you remember, like, what was it like getting in Columbus and saying, this is how I'm going to start it and figuring out you know, how am I going to position us versus everybody else in the space who's doing this and what's going to differentiate us? Sure. That's a good question. I, you know, the idea behind Copper Run was, and when I first moved to Columbus, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I thought I knew what I wanted to do. I had an idea to start a business that served like, um, go, go, go into a lot of detail, but Sarbanes-Oxley clients. So at the time that was the thing that came out after Enron, uh, you know, a lot of businesses had to serve, you know, comply with these new laws and rules and regulations. I'm like, well, I'm going to do an outsourced socks business, Sarbanes-Oxley. It's called socks. Um, and then got into it. And I'm like, I don't really even like accounting <laughs> that much. I don't want to do this. I'm going to start an investment bank. And so, um, and the reason was there just saw an opportunity in the market. A lot, a lot, like a lot of entrepreneurs, there was a void in the market and said so there was nobody that I thought was doing a good job of helping businesses buy and sell companies in that, call it, you know, five to a hundred million deal size range. And there had been at one point and a lot of them had been bought by commercial banks and kind of disappeared. And so that was the idea behind Copper Run and really the reason it got started. And so, you know, the accounting and the financial side of things or the other finance side of things, but what made you, or at least what made you feel at the time or what eventually stuck out that you were good at this and that you, you could add a value prop to organizations? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the fact that uh, just had a, a very strong financial background, and but also had a, a sales background, I like to sell. And that's a, kind of rare in the finance business or accounting business. Um, 
I love putting deals together, you know, because it, it takes some creativity, right? So you got to come up with an idea of how a deal could be put together and then execute on it. And just really enjoyed that um, and still do today. That's why I get out of bed every morning because it's, it's a lot of fun to do those deals. So that was the original idea. And the creativity comes in when it just comes to leveraging debt or looking at the balance sheet and figuring out, you know, how, how we can make the most out of the assets or am I missing That's it? That's part of it. But a lot of it's, you know, there, there's egos involved with owners and buyers and sellers and lawyers and all that stuff. So we kind of have to put that all together. Part of it is financing. Absolutely. Um, part of it's, you know, how it's going to, how we're going to present it to the market. Um, there's, there's a lot that, that's involved uh, in the whole process. I'm curious about the beginning because obviously, you know, if you have capital, it's, it's a lot easier to make money than if you don't. When you were like, I want to start an investment bank, that doesn't sound like, you know, something you could just <laughs> show up and do. Is it, I'm assuming you're, you're, you're bringing on outside money or how, how no, did that process so, look like? Uh, we brought on, a, so I had a partner who started with uh, Scott Chapman, who's still, he's still with Copper and today. We brought on some money, but not not much. It, and it was really just to start the business and kick it off. Because you're more brokering and facilitating. We're more brokering, and we do some investing today. But okay. it's that the majority of our business brokerage uh, gotcha. still is. Do you do you guys deal with evaluating the obviously the value of a business? Is that something that you guys handle, or is that somebody something you outsource? So we do that. Uh, we don't. We're not a valuation firm. Normally, those are accounting firms mm-hmm. that do that. We do them as part of a transaction. Have you found a, a consistent multiplier or something to value business? In my all my years, everybody has an opinion. Sure. And I've never been able to find, you know, a business could be worth this much or, or you know, this much. Well, it's typically like based on industry and growth rate and mm-hmm. everything That's what I'm else, saying. I'm just right? curious so if you like, had yeah. like, you know, a yeah, formula all you different. Use. So a software business could sell for seven times revenue. Mm-hmm. And, a, you know, manufacturing business might be five times EBITDA or free, free cash flow, which is a much smaller number, yeah. obviously, than revenue. You want to hear something insane? Someone in our industry, won't name names, they sold for 29x revenue. I, I, I believe it. It's, um, I mean, and, and it's not like they were growing that quickly either. That's yeah. what shocked me about it. But it was a company looking for a specific type of software company, looking for something to add on to their portfolio that they thought they had a lot of synergies with. So they basically said, yeah, we'll go, but only for this number. And it's, it's, it was ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the reason software probably specifically can go for that because it, it's so scalable, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. if you can find a software business that you can plug into your distribution, you know, network and mm-hmm. it can go from, you know, X million to 20 X million pretty quickly. Right. Well, this is like a major manufacturing corporation that purchased yeah. the software and it fits well within their sure. machines and everything like that. So it just, they must've had a good investment bank. Yeah, I would sell for 29. <laughs> yeah, you think so? Yeah. It's not bad. Yeah, not a bad no. multiplier, I don't think. Not not even a little bit. For uh, If you're the owner, you're sitting there going, all right, I guess I wasn't thinking about it, but that'll make me think. Yep, no, that's that's true. Now, that's the exception, right? Right, that's yeah, it's not, I mean, rare. most people yeah. aren't going to sell, yeah. But, um, and that, unfortunately, that's what we run into a lot of times. That's what I was thinking. People are like, oh, my business is worth this. Well, you know, if you were Google, yeah, it would be mm-hmm. worth that, yeah. but you're not. I was well, say, right. You probably get a lot of people that are, that come in thinking. Yeah, that must be the toughest part, right? Especially on, if you're doing buy side, right? Like finding people willing to sell their business at a reasonable multiple would seem to me to be the, the hardest part. It is a challenge for sure. You're, so. like, you're like the pawn star guy. <laughs> they come in as like the best I can do is this. Right. Yeah. They're yeah, coming yeah. in way high. <laughs> and then, yeah. They're coming in like, I, I want, you know, 29 X and you're like, well, the best I can do is two. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, we have that sometimes. You know, if we if we talk to a hundred companies on behalf of a client that have an interest in selling, maybe we'll get one or two or three that are legitimate sellers. Really, and then that's a win. You know, if you mm-hmm. get one done out of talking to a hundred, that's a win. Really? Sounds like cold calling, man. 
that's how we build our business. I mean, when even going back to Canner, I mean, that's how I've always been. It, you, you got a cold call and and that's how you start from from nothing to, to build it up. Pick up the phone and start dialing. <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. So going back to those early days and then talking about the growth trajectory, how did you start to add on team members and how did the team start to scale as, as everything evolved? So we started the business in 2008. So horrible timing, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, mm-hmm. In the fall of 08, the, the whole world fell apart. And actually, I think it was much worse than what we're going through right now. Mm-hmm. Not even close. Uh, so I'll be honest, it was pretty slow. It was three, four, five of us for the first few years. And then starting probably about five, maybe six, five or six years ago, um, started growing. We'd add it one or two people a year, uh, do some bigger deals, spread our wings outside of Ohio more, you know, that type of thing. And it's been in, in the last two years, it's grown more and we've, we've scaled it quite a bit in the last two or three years uh, as we've gotten uh, our, build our brand up, got a reputation uh, for doing certain types of deals. That's, that's really kind of grown from there. So what about like on, on the horizon, what do you see coming up? Like, what are you guys focused on? What are the current initiatives? Where, where do you want to take copper? Sure. So we're, um, yeah, continue to grow the business, you know, always looking for folks. We have an office in Cleveland now. We have an office in Cincinnati. I would love to have an office in Detroit, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh, you know, or wherever. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the idea, you know, uh, just can continue to grow the business, make it a, you know, when we started copper on the idea was we wanted to have a fun place to work that uh, you know, people would want to work at. And that's, that hasn't changed. You know, mm-hmm. still the same today. Always looking for smart people, smart, aggressive people that you know, want, to, want to do something with their career. And uh, you know, we, can, we can work with them. What about challenges that you see entrepreneurs face? I mean, you talk to business owners and leaders day in and day out. Uh, what are some of the key things that you see them struggling with the most? Is, that, is there trends that stick out to you? Yeah, you know, entrepreneurs... Um, I guess a couple of things I see, I, and, and you know, we have a lot of business come to us that even if they're really small, you know, a friend of a friend or something, hey, can you help, you know, Sue out or Joe out or whoever? Probably the biggest obstacles we see are people that get into a business where there's just not a market. You know, they think it's something fun to do or they think there's a market, but they didn't really explore it and do market research. Then it's, it's tough, man. If you don't have anybody that's going to buy your product, there's only so much you can do, right? You can have a great product, but if it's not, not something anybody needs. Mm-hmm. Fishing lures uh, in it, a backyard yeah. and no, <laughs> and no exactly. ponds around. That was a, I learned that lesson when I was there nine or go. 10, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, that, that's probably one of the biggest challenges. I think, you know, once you get some success, have a good accountant. I mean, we see that even for larger companies sometimes that don't have good, good accounting, good numbers, and there's only so much you can do. If that's the case, it's hard to run a business successfully if you don't know what your numbers are. Um, and just... You, I, those are probably some of the biggest challenges. Uh, I was curious about that when you said about building services companies or anything in maybe like the general contracting or construction space. Just, um, I, I'd imagine that most of those people, and this could be a, a terrible stereotype but and completely wrong, but are more blue collar and they built it because they knew how to do it and they added on more people. And it was, wasn't so much that they were necessarily business people, but more trades people that grew it up. Do you see that or is that completely inaccurate from what you uh, see in the business? We see that a lot, actually. And it's it's actually awesome to see. Uh, you see, you'll meet business owners that, you know, probably would be the first to admit they barely graduated high school and now they're running a 
business doing a hundred million in revenue a year. Yeah. Um, it's awesome. And now they probably had some help though along the way. Mm-hmm. And everybody does. I don't care if you, you know, graduated the Harvard MBA, you're going to need somebody to help you out and help guide you in the right direction. Uh, but we absolutely see that. What I'm curious about is, and anytime I talk to people who work with, you know, acquisitions and mergers and things like that, I'm, I'm guessing you've seen some crazy books out there of accounting. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen oh, from man. an accounting perspective? Not, not name names, of course, but oh. like, what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen on like, when it comes to a book of accounting and like trying to figure it out, <laughs> like trying to understand, make, make, you know, sense of it. I think we had a few years ago, we had, um, we were looking at a business a client was trying to buy and we asked for financials and this guy, you know, it was a pretty big company and he sent over, I mean, it was, looked like something a kid had written on a piece of paper. I mean, <laughs> And his wife is doing the accounting and it was just a mess. So, I mean, we, I've got a lot of stories, right. you know, we crack open that bourbon. We can talk more about it. Okay. But. <laughs> I don't want, yeah. I'm sure that, you know, privacy yeah, sure, and all that, we sure. can't talk about it on the podcast, but I was just curious. Yep, there's you some, should see Conquering Columbus's books. Clean yeah, run, as a whistle. Uh, well, that's, yeah, I run those books so you can imagine that, you know, <laughs> I'm sure. I was going to say, what you just described sounded like the first 10 years of business for me. We were the worst. If you put two artists in charge of mm-hmm. taxes, like one time we got, uh, like a, a huge fee from the IRS. And they were like, basically you forgot to pay taxes for like two years. And it was this massive bill. So we just called, we we're like, sorry. Like we kind of forgot. Yeah. So they like took away the late fee, but we still had to pay it. Just yep. two years didn't, just didn't pay any taxes. Now the IRS, Whoops. they don't, they don't, they don't just let you slide. Yeah. They? Right. No. <laughs> they took away the fee though. I was Go kinda, figure. I was kind of surprised by that. Right. But yeah. That sounds like us for, for years. I'm still not the best, but mm-hmm. we're getting better. Mm-hmm. Tim's like, well, the number doesn't have a negative in front of it. So <laughs> I'm confused that. about what you said. <laughs> if, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> If you have more than you spent, Brett, you did good. You did good. We're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Working from home is full of challenges. Online school from home can be even tougher. The internet's frozen again. I can't hear my teacher. Don't add to the frustrations with no hot water for showers or laundry or cooking. Clog drains in your kitchens or bathrooms. You have enough going on at home right now. You know who to call. Let the pros at the Waterworks handle all your plumbing and drain cleaning. Call 614-25-DRAIN today. What about the Columbus market in particular? I don't know how many deals you guys are doing. I mean, you mentioned the other one that in Idaho and are just focused here. What does it look like to you? Uh, I mean, Columbus has been an awesome market. You know, we do probably, I don't know, third of our business in the state of Ohio and, you know, probably half of that's in central Ohio. Since I've moved here, I mean, it's been amazing how much it's grown. I mean, you look at all these startups and we're, quite frankly, we're not involved in, you know, the, the tech startups and the insurance startups like a root or cover my meds or things like that. But I mean, it's just awesome to yeah. see that. And I will tell you, you know, we travel, we go a lot around the Midwest, you know, to, you know, Fort Wayne, to Indianapolis, to Grand Rapids to Detroit to Pittsburgh to Erie and and everywhere in between, and Columbus is the shining city on the hill. You nice. know they say they know we're from Columbus. Like wow, you know yeah we went to Easton a month ago and spent a weekend <laughs> nice. or you know somebody from Wheeling or wherever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and so it is pretty cool uh, mm-hmm. to hear that and see that, and it's exciting. And I, I think you know thirty years Columbus will be the city probably in mm-hmm. Ohio. If not, you know, I mean, we already I'm, are the, the city yeah, of Ohio. Yeah, that's true. We are the city <laughs> in Ohio. But I'm throwing all kinds of questions at you, Andy, that sure. were on the outline, but I'm going to hit you with that's another right. one. With Columbus growing and, you know, the market continuing to grow, what markets that do you see being high growth that people aren't really thinking about right now? So, like, what are the non obvious markets that you would say, hey, getting into this type of market would maybe be a good play as the city grows and continues to develop? You know, I, I don't, I mean, there's a lot of things that, 
obviously insurance. I mean, it's in the news though, so that's not really under the radar. Under the radar, but, it's, but like, people you know, are like, coming. You know, it, it's a national. Columbus has become a national insurance mm-hmm. startup hub. Mm-hmm which is pretty amazing. We got Bold Penguin out here. We've got, you know, Root. We've got multiple different. If you think about that ecosystem, it's like you see these hotbeds of certain cities that start to become known for certain Mm -hmm. industries of startups. And I feel like insurance, undoubtedly, where we're really, if we haven't already or didn't have a name, it's becoming one. But then FinTech a little bit, it feels like too. I don't know if JP Morgan is driving that. Uh, You know, a little bit of FinTech. I was going to actually going to mention EdTech. Uh, We're seeing some EdTech startups and things like that uh, around town. I think that'll continue to develop. Mm-hmm. And that is a red hot area right now. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to talk, well, about, yeah, talk I mean, about multiples, it's really crazy. Uh, you know, those are some of the things it's, you know, it, it's it, a lot of these technology businesses, younger folks like you guys, you know, that are starting them, they're out of their apartment and it's turning into something. It, it's pretty, pretty awesome to see. Are you seeing one type of industry? Cause you said you're doing a third of your business here. Is there a specific industry that you're working with here? Or is it all over the board? You know, all over the board. So we do. Um, we have a couple. Um, we have a couple family office type groups we work with here, and then we do some sell side work for some companies here as well. Uh, you know, can't get into details on it, but and we have closed deals with them over the years. But mm-hmm. it's um, you know, honestly, we'd like to do more business in Columbus mm-hmm. as it continues to grow, and I'm sure we will. But we're getting out there and working it, and uh, COVID has definitely slowed things down as far as opening new offices and yeah. things like that. But uh, hoping to get back to it in 20, 2021. You, you touched on a little bit and then you called attention to it right there about COVID. And we want to talk a little bit about that benchmark against 08 and 09. Our guest we had on the other day spoke and made a really good point. You know, the difference to him was that banks are flush with cash right now as opposed to 08 09. It was a disaster everywhere. Are you seeing anything different in there? Is, is there any type of comparison or is it pure contrast against that? Yeah. So, um, you know, back in March and April and May, it definitely felt like 08 09. Uh, you know, it's like, oh shit, here we go again. It's like when you, you know, that when you fall off a really steep cliff or like the roller coaster starts yeah. dropping, your stomach gets up in your chest. That's what it felt like. Absolutely. And, and obviously started a business then. So that yeah. wasn't great. <laughs> and I've done it already. Didn't want to do it again. But I tell you what, starting in the summer, it turned pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Josh, that you you, um, hit it on the nail on the head there. It's, there's so much cash, you know, the treasuries pumped three and a half trillion dollars worth of cash into the economy. Um, and, and that's helped loosen things up. And, and with the exception of probably, you know, hospitality and restaurants and travel, most companies are doing pretty well mm-hmm. right now. There and probably a couple other areas that are struggling, but, uh, we have a lot of that in Columbus, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, yeah. Again, the question hard. I have is, are you seeing people yet like because like those industries aren't doing well, I'm imagining that you could probably buy into those right now uh, for some pretty cheap multiples. Are you seeing any of that yet? Like are people, or are people still like not no, touching that with the I tell you what, uh, back in, you know, April and May, we were getting a lot of calls from mm-hmm. people that had cash. Like, okay, well, we're going to start buying here mm-hmm. this summer. And, and as these people were struggling and it just didn't develop, didn't happen in the way we thought it would. Right. We thought a lot more business would struggle a lot, mm-hmm. a lot more than they have. Uh, but I think to your point, there there, there is certainly opportunity in yep. in those things. But here, I think that the difference is maybe versus 08, 09, you know, some of those areas may just not come back mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, hotels, you know, I've, I've stayed in two hotels, I think, this year. Normally, I probably would have stayed in 30 right. in a year. I've flown three or four times this year. Uh, normally, I would have flown 20 times, 25 yeah. times. Uh, it's going to, but in some of those, those trips, I mean, we had a client in Green Bay, Wisconsin. 
if you want to find a tough place to get to, try and go to Green Bay, Wisconsin. It's easier to get to Hawaii than it is Green Bay. <laughs> and But now we can do a Zoom with yeah. those folks and hopefully never go to Green Bay again because it's a day on each side to get there. Right. Um, those types of things, I think, have probably changed for good. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, we've really, really changed the way we interact with people entirely. I went to a place in Kansas the other day. I, I think it would give Green Bay a run for its money. It was... <laughs> A night like what town? What city was it? Uh, it was right near Nebraska. I didn't even know Kansas was okay. near Nebraska. I don't look at maps a lot, but <laughs> I just I know it. we landed and then we drove four hours and then we got out and we rolled down some hills and we drove again. It was insane. And then we were finally there and they said they said we have two thousand people with an hour from here. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's hmm. it's pretty. There's uh, not a whole lot out there, is there? It's crazy. Yep. The person, the person, my favorite part, the person that we walked in and sat us was also cooking our food and was also the person who checked us out. So oh, when you went to eat? <laughs> yeah. They did it all. Check of all <laughs> yeah. trades. Really That's skilled awesome. individual. Yeah. Great business to buy because it's lean labor cost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So as you look at private and public markets, you might not have any opinion on this. Again, I know we're hitting on you with a lot of stuff outside the outline. Do you see, um, and when it comes to acquisitions, are, do those two trends follow each other in terms of, I mean, obviously the, the market's been doing great publicly and there's a lot of opportunity for acquisitions out there because uh, the share prices are so high. Are you seeing the same situation in the private sector? Uh, not to the same crazy extreme, probably, you are in the public markets. I, You know, for for probably 20 years now, more and more companies have been going private, and the private equity has driven that. And also, you know, honestly, increased regulation on companies trying to go public. It, it became tougher and tougher to, to go public. And so a lot of companies just went private or stayed private and never went public. Now, if you get these valuations higher and higher and higher, we'll see more companies going public for sure. So um, I think public companies are kind of leading the charge right now. There's a lot going on in the private markets, but it is, you know, it's a wild west right now with public companies. That was, that was an interesting dynamic that I read about rather recently too, where they talked about the differences and how companies are staying private longer. And by the time they go public, most of the returns have already been recognized in the private sector. Why? Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. And I actually hope, you know, as a, as a country, we um, enable more companies to go public because it enables people to invest in them, you know, mm-hmm. average people to invest in them and, um, and raises capital. It's a, a much faster way to raise capital. Honestly, that's what I used to do. And, um, you know, hope, hopefully we get back to that. But right now, you know, uh, nature hates a, a vacuum, right? Uh, yeah. So private equity jumped in where, you know, those public companies, you're no longer going public. I mean, you look at the history of Columbus, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you know, Wendy's Limited, you know, companies like that went public and they were tiny. Uh, you can't go public if it's a $30 million deal or a $50 million deal. Not, you know, you're going to pay $10 million in legal fees. Right. So it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, even Amazon, right? It was like a dollar a share when they opened up and they were, they were not near as, like they were much smaller. Like yep. today, right? And Amazon today would never go public when Amazon did. They would hold out and keep raising the well, private, private equity yeah. probably would have bought it and oh, another yeah. one would have bought it after that. Yeah. They would have eventually gone right. public. Eventually yeah. gone public, but yeah. they would have been worth trillion dollars by the time sure. it went public, you know? But so. no, I, I think, I think private equity probably is sucking up a lot of that growth. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, like I'm, I'm no economist by any means, but it just, it's, it strikes me. It's gotta be putting uh weight on that wealth gap and the effect. I mean, like if you take Airbnb, for example, that was issued at 68 bucks a share. And by the time the general public had access to it, it's at 147 yeah. and it's worth whatever, $80 billion or $120 billion. The investment banks didn't do a good job on that one. Cause it also they, was like, cause they left a lot of money years. on the table, but they were like mm-hmm. 12 or 13 years as a private company too. So that was yeah. a, a lot longer of, of a, of a hold from what I understand. Right. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know the exact details gotcha. of that, but... Um, I read one article. I'm, I know everything now. <laughs> right. expert. I woke up early to try to buy those, yeah. and, and I ran into what you were talking about. I thought I was going to be, you know, the first to get them, and then they were like, you know, hundred some dollars. I was like, ah, yeah, never mind. Well, yeah, I, that I, was a, a wild IPO, wasn't it? Yeah. I, was, I was following I it. stayed far away from I that. I put it in at Robin, and I put, a, I put a limit buy on there, and I said, all right, I'll just put it like 72 or 68 bucks. So I'm like, 72 bucks a share, I'll probably... Yeah. I'll get it on the uptick a little bit. And I look at my thing. I'm like, why did my, why did my buy never go through? Yeah. And it was a straight cliff up to yep. $142. <laughs> yep. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to, I should cancel this. Okay. Do you have Robinhood accounts? I do I not. Do. I yeah. use uh, Charles Schwab. Yeah. Do most of your, a lot of your friends have Robinhood accounts? Most people I know have Robinhood, yeah. Would they have an account if they didn't have a Robinhood account? Would they open a Schwab account? Or I, don't, I don't think so. I don't so. think yeah. so, no. Robinhood makes it easier for them. It's right? changed There's a the few market. of them, yeah. Like Webull another one. Okay. Cash App has stocks now too. So the only reason I have Schwab and not Robinhood is because growing up, my parents put money into a Schwab account, sure. right? For me, like anytime I got That's money, dope. well, like they didn't, it was my, like, it was like my <laughs> gift money, right? Yeah. So they took like, anytime I got gift money from grandma or whatever, right? Half of it went in the Schwab account, half of it. Mike's from San Diego. Yeah, I, yeah. We it's don't a know different we world. Hold on. It's a different world. <laughs> my parents, I wasn't even going there. <laughs> my parents bought me Velcros. They said, that'll work. If you want Jordans, figure it out. <laughs> it was like, you know, it was like always like, yeah, Which anytime I you get money, but... stay save half, spend half, right? Like that mm, was yeah. like the, always the thing. So I had like a small account after I got out of college that I got, you know, well, not when I got into college that I always use Schwab, just never sure. took it out. But but to that point, and you're going to know much more about this than I will, but the, the two narratives or the two uh, driving factors behind the share price, obviously the, the financial and then just the narrative of the company itself. So if you look at Tesla, for example, I mean, and I don't know hundred uh, percent detail, they said they could sell every electric car in the world and it still wouldn't justify the valuation yeah, or something crazy. Sure. So when you look at Airbnb, for example. So what I am curious about is I think through these things is like is things like Robinhood really driving up the narrative side more than the financial side. And will that eventually lead to some form of bubble? Uh, yes, eventually, whether it's a big bubble or small bubble, who knows? Um, I think it'll be a smaller one sitting here today. I don't, I think people are kind of realizing hey, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, but no, it, it um, it's kind of a crazy time, and and I think it is, a lot of it is due to the, the Robin Hood investors of the world. You know, like Tesla. I don't have a Tesla, but I love Teslas. I would never buy Tesla stock right now. Uh, it just makes no sense as a finance guy. I don't think you know, Elon a valuation Musk guy. It, it makes zero that. sense, right? <laughs> right. If, so. if, if the CEO comes out and says, hey, maybe you guys should kick this share price down a little bit. <laughs> maybe chill a little bit. I don't yeah. think that's going to happen. Yeah, it's like, oh. Hey, everybody, we're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. You know, it really couldn't be cooler to have a sponsor and a partner like One Columbus. They are directly in alignment with everything we stand for and everything we're looking to promote here at Conquering Columbus. I mean, they just want to bring the most competitive companies to the area and make everything about the city and the region just one of the greatest places to live in the United States and in the world for that matter. Yeah, they're like the ultimate Columbus hype man. They're trying to bring new businesses here, show them what our strengths are, but also address some of the weaknesses and say, like, this is how we could get better. So for us, we're excited to help promote their goal and help tell the story with them on board. Absolutely. And if you guys want to learn more about One Columbus, check them out at columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. So as someone who, like I said earlier, did everything wrong, what advice would you give to a younger, say the business, like me 10 years ago or so, wish I would have known. I have, you know, what, 100, 200,000, like something really low in the scheme of your world business, but you're, you know, bootstrapping, they're not taking on money. What would be the best way to go about growth, right? Do you, do you, how do you find money? How do you, 
who do you reach out to? What, what sure. would be your advice for somebody that's, they've already made that first stage, they're, they're mm -hmm. making profit, but you know, you're spending all your money buying more product or, you know, operating yep. and you don't have that money to grow. You need that, that cash to, to expand quickly to take over that, whatever market you're in. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of money out there. You really have to probably network pretty hard and look for, you know, ask friends and family and, you know, talk to, you know, business bankers and small, you know, get an SBA loan. SBA program's awesome. If you have an existing business, it's a good way to help grow that business. So you think um, that as opposed to, you know, an investor or, you know, a capital. Like yeah. I mean, if you can maintain as much equity as you can, is always a good thing. Yeah. Um, not always possible. Right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're going to have to give it away. But and, and then as, as you grow your business, I think the biggest thing that we see is for businesses that never that don't grow is the owners are micromanagers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they've they've got to be on every sales call. They've got to know everything that's going on in the business. You got to take yourself out of the business. Right. If you really mm -hmm. want to grow it. That's huge. You hired managers for a reason. Let them manage. Exactly. <laughs> well, Andy, I think good place to head towards our last yep. question of the show centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? Yeah, you know, I knew you were going to ask that question because I've listened to some of your podcasts, yeah. but, um, and I'm curious to see why you, you won't tell the story behind it, but uh, we'll, we'll ask that later. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I always think of, uh, I don't, I didn't think of live uncomfortably, but more like try and do something that scares you a little bit every day and maybe yeah. not every day, but you know, whether it's business or personal or mm -hmm. a challenge, you know, run a marathon or, um, you know, hire a new person or open a new market. I just think that's how you, people grow. I mean, I, I know I've always tried to do that mm -hmm. and it makes life more interesting. So I guess that to me, that's kind of how I look at living uncomfortably. 100% Andy. And I think, you know, why we don't share live uncomfortably with our guests? Well, you know, I think it's a mystery now and people just keep, you know, maybe they keep tuning in because they want to find out. I know. I are they going to explain it, it this time? I thought I was going to crack the code today. Not today, everybody. <laughs> You're going to have to be uncomfortable not knowing our answer for a little while longer. But uh, Josh is shaking his head. So I'm making him <laughs> I live uncomfortably every time I hear Mike Minucci make a joke. <laughs> and I get on this podcast at least twice a week. So yeah, I, and I get uncomfortable by telling terrible jokes and then putting it out on the internet for people to laugh at me. So there you go. There we go. But Andy, thanks so much for yep. taking the time thanks, to talk guys. with us. It's, it's been fun. a lot of fun. Thanks. Take care. Conquerors, thanks for tuning in. Appreciate all of your support. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button. That way you can get Conquering Columbus episodes right into your uh, phone or whatever device you're listening on every week. We'll talk to you next week.